Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We've heard the governor's state of the state. We know what's on lawmakers' minds, but what does the average Idahoan think? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Professor Jeffrey Lyons of Boise State University's School of Public Service joins us to discuss the most recent public policy survey from the university, as well as insights into what Idahoans feel about the pandemic, vaccines, and mask mandates. Then, Mark Browning of the College of Western Idaho and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News join us to discuss education budget requests and more. But first, a quick COVID update. According to a White House COVID-19 state report on Idaho released this week, Idaho's newly reported cases rose slightly recently, though new hospital admissions dropped 30%. Deaths remain high with 284 reported so far in January as of Friday morning. The number of vaccinations administered this week has remained about steady, and Idaho will continue to receive approximately 21,000 vaccine doses weekly into mid-February. This amount doesn't include the guaranteed second shot for people who have already received their first dose. Idaho continues to lag behind other states in the number of people vaccinated per capita. On Thursday, Governor Brad Little announced a new executive order to speed up vaccine distribution and make that distribution process more transparent. Today, I am signing a new executive order. It's called the Transparency in the Administration of COVID-19 Vaccine Executive Order. My executive order requires health districts and providers to regularly report the number of vaccine doses that have been allocated, how many shots have been given, and how many doses they have in inventory to ensure vaccine is getting out in a timely fashion. We will be able to see in practically real time the number of doses each provider has received, administered, and has an inventory to demonstrate our commitment of getting out doses as quickly as they come to Idaho. I will review this information daily to ensure that doses are distributed equitably across Idaho and the providers and public health districts have the operations in place to be able to give shots within seven days of the doses arriving. On February 1st, the 65 and older population can begin making appointments to re receive vaccine in Idaho. This is a big step to keep our seniors safe and healthy. But I wanna be clear, there is still a big gap between supply and demand at this point. The senior population in Idaho includes more than 265,000 people. Idaho currently receives just 24,000 first doses per week. Based on our current allocation, it could take two months for eligible people to receive their first dose. 
questions still remain about who in Idaho is receiving those shots. This week, a CNN analysis showed that in 14 states, white people are inoculated against COVID-19 at a higher rate than black and Hispanic people. But Idaho doesn't collect that data. And this week, both Governor Little and Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jeffson were asked why. Uh, yes, in Idaho statute, it's very um, specific what we can capture in our data system, our IRIS system, as the governor mentioned. And we are not allowed under statute to capture uh, that demographic, that race and ethnicity data through that system. Uh, and so that makes the challenge a little bit higher to measure um, what's happening in that with our demographics across the state. We are committed to finding other ways to capture that data. Uh, and we are in active conversations with the health districts to understand other avenues we can use uh, to capture that data because we are committed to making sure, as the governor said, that this is done equitably and fairly across the state. Uh, and so we continue to work on that. I would like to think uh, and, and hope and urge and, uh, that, that we are agnostic, uh, that right now all the people that are in A1 have, that want it can get a shot. Uh, starting Monday, everybody 65 and older can get a shot. And then we'll go through those other priorities when we get down the line. Uh, but I know of no barriers other than the fact uh, it, it is probably going to be less uh, uh, ethnic and going to be more location. It's going to be their distance from a big provider, their distance from a pharmacy that has uh, a lot of capabilities. Both Idaho Reports and the Idaho Statesman have reviewed relevant code and administrative rules and could find no such prohibition on the collection of demographic data. We're still waiting to hear back from the Department of Health and Welfare. We have more on the Idaho Reports blog. You'll find that link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Much of the focus so far this session has been on the push and pull between the executive and legislative branches, with lawmakers trying to curb Governor Brad Little's executive powers in reaction to his COVID-19 response. Those efforts have ranged from a proposal to place a time limit on future emergency declarations to a Senate effort to end the current emergency declaration as long as it didn't affect FEMA funding. After public rebukes from Little and former House Speakers Bruce Newcomb and Congressman Mike Simpson, Senate leadership withdrew that resolution. And on Friday, they introduced a new one to end the Stage 2 statewide public health order instead. While lawmakers are navigating those issues, what are average Idahoans concerned about? This week, Boise State University released its sixth annual public policy survey. And on Friday, Professor Jeffrey Lyons joined us to discuss its findings. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you give us an overview of the public policy survey? Absolutely. So the School of Public Service at Boise State, um, we, we used to do this survey for a while, a couple decades ago, um, and then we sort of restarted it about six years ago. And, and this survey is a statewide survey of Idaho, and it is designed to capture the preferences and opinions of Idahoans. So what we do is we recruit a sample of a thousand Idahoans, and we do it through a couple of different means. We do it over the phone, we do it via uh, email, and we do it via text message kind of trying to uh, get over the hurdles of people not answering their phones and, and, and recruit people from a diverse um, array of different kinds of contacts. And so what, what we do is we've got a sample of a thousand people that really does pretty nicely look like the state of Idaho. It is geographically representative of the state. Um, it looks about like the state in terms of age. 
And really importantly for our purposes, I think it's pretty close to what the state would look like on uh, measures of partisanship, right? So we have a sample where it's a, it's a majority Republican sample, and that's one concern in surveys out there today is that surveys just aren't quite getting enough Republicans. Uh, but we feel pretty good about this sample uh, representing all Idahoans over the age of 18. That's kind of the group we're trying to, to speak to. So when it comes to that group of Idahoans, broadly speaking, what are the policy priorities? So it's really interesting. We've been asking this policy priority question now for the last six years, and we keep seeing a very, very consistent message from Idahoans. The first thing that always uh, is almost always at the top of our list is education. So year over year, uh, people say, you know, the number one thing for us or the thing we are most interested in seeing addressed is education. Now, it doesn't mean we, we know what exactly they want to happen with education, but that issue is consistently at the top of the list, along with jobs in the economy, and this year was no different. So we've just seen this very, very consistent message from Idahoans. Before we get into specifics and the breakdown, I, I'm really curious about the COVID-specific questions that you asked this year. Um, when it comes to the pandemic, what's on Idahoans' minds? You know, it's really interesting. So we, we asked a, a whole bunch of different questions about people's personal experiences with the virus. So have you had it? How many people do you know uh, that have had it? Uh, things like that. We also asked, you know, what are your biggest concerns? Um, because the, the pandemic is impacting so many different parts of people's lives. And one thing that we, we found was that uh, Idahoans put impacts on the economy actually as, as the most frequently identified concern. Also near the top of the list are concerns about how the pandemic is impacting the education of Idaho's children. Um, so actually, when we provide those different options, we see that the third place option is, is the public health concerns about sickness. Um, so Idahoans appear to be primarily concerned with economic impacts as it relates to the pandemic. And there were partisan splits in those concerns too, which isn't surprising looking at nation, the, the nationwide discussion. Exactly right. And so that's one of the predominant themes, both in the COVID questions, but really throughout the survey is the most important thing you need to know about somebody if you want to predict what they think is their partisanship. So Republicans overwhelmingly are in the concern about uh, the economy, as well as the education of Idaho's children. Democrats much more likely to say that their primary concern was more in the public health sphere, things relating to sickness, et cetera. Let's talk about mask mandates. That was one of the questions that people were asked, and and it was pretty evenly split, but people felt very strongly about the question. Exactly right, and I think this is another sort of sign of our highly partisan time. So we actually uh, asked two different questions. The first was just kind of a general, what do you think about the idea of a statewide mask mandate? When we ask it that way, we see a majority of Idahoans support the idea of a statewide mask mandate. Democrats almost universally support it. Republicans were more divided. Actually, Republicans were slightly opposed. Um, when we ask a version of the question saying, what do you think about a statewide mask mandate where not wearing a mask is enforceable by a fine, uh, we see opinions now become very sharply divided in the state. Essentially, they're within our margin of error, and we, we can't say if more Idahoans support or oppose a mask mandate with an enforcement provision. People were fairly divided on vaccines, too. They were. And so, so I think I should give some context to the vaccine question. Our survey was in the field at the very end of November and very beginning of December. So at this point in time, we had um, trial results for our, our two primary vaccines had been released. So people knew they were effective. 
um, but they had not yet been approved by the FDA. People had not yet begun getting shots. So that was the world people were living in when we asked them this question. But what we found was uh, about 55% of Idahoans said they would probably or definitely get the vaccine, with 38% saying they would probably or definitely not get the vaccine. So that's a number that's probably going to prevent, present a challenge to public health officials as they try to get the percentage in the state uh, to be high enough to where we can really see uh, cases fall off. But as you acknowledge, those questions were asked in the infancy of vaccine rollout. And so if you ask that question now, and I realize I'm asking you to speculate, but do you think that those no's would be a little bit more soft or more people would be willing to? That's a great question. Um, you know, so we have seen since uh, early December some increases in willingness to get vaccinated if we look at national polling data. And that's kind of the best thing we can do to compare is to say, well, what's happened nationwide? And there is a suggestion that nationwide we have seen that. And in talking with people around the state of Idaho about these results, I think the hope is that as the vaccine rollout accelerates, as people personally know others who have gotten the vaccine and they've been fine, and then they're not getting sick, uh, that hopefully that willingness to get vaccinated will increase. But yeah, so my guess is today we would probably see slightly more optimistic numbers on this question, um, but it, there probably is still a fair amount of resistance. We're showing about 27% of the state saying they definitely would not get a vaccine. So that's, that's some pretty hard resistance. Let's get back to legislative policy. You know, when you asked this, Idaho was seeing a, a sizable budget surplus, and since then it's only grown. What were folks' thoughts on what to do with that budget surplus? Yeah, so um, we presented folks with a question basically saying, and like you mentioned, at this point in time, we were thinking um, a slightly smaller surplus than we're actually expecting now. What do you think uh, we should do with this money? And the state is somewhat divided on this. Uh, the most common response was tax relief. So turning some of this money back to the people via tax cuts in some format. Um, but a sizable number of Idahoans, you know, in the low 30% range said their priority would be uh, investing in critical state services, whether it's education or transportation, something along those lines. So there's kind of this tension in public opinion in Idaho where both tax cuts and investment in, in critical services are both fairly popular amongst the public. When you asked the question, was it an either or, or was there a chance for respondents to say, you know what, we have enough money, we can invest and return some to taxpayers? It's a great question. So the way we presented it was, what do you think is your top priority? So we, we had a pick, a choose one of them. Um, you're right, the actual nature of the policy discussion, and if you look at the governor's budget proposals and things like this, is some mixture of these things. We avoid that in the survey simply because things can get complicated um, on, the, on the question delivery end of things when we start having people rank, rank order choices. But you're absolutely right that with both being popular, um, it's likely that there's some support for a mixture of the two, kind of like what you've seen in the, in the governor's budget. When it comes to respondents who said that they thought that tax relief should be the top priority, what were the types of tax cuts that they were interested in? Yeah, so we asked a question that said, okay, so if we were to do tax, uh, tax relief, is there a kind of tax you would be most interested in seeing reduced? And really what we see is income tax being the most popular, uh, but property taxes also being high on the list, 
sales tax quite a bit down the list. So reducing sales tax is, is, appears to be the least popular option uh, of those three. But I would put the income and property taxes kind of in, in, a similar, um, in a similar realm in terms of their popularity. Is grocery tax included under the sales tax umbrella? So, you know, from a policy perspective, I would say, yes, it is. We actually asked a question specifically about the grocery tax a few years back, um, and we did see quite a bit of support for reducing that specific, um, that specific tax. For this one, we just chose to leave it a little bit more open-ended and just keep things simple in terms of income, property, and sales. When it comes to education, how do, I, how do Idahoans see the quality of K-12 schools? You know, it's really interesting. So we've been asking that question for the past five years now. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of the most common response we see is that the quality of education in the state is fair. Um, sizable number do say good. We do also have about 20 to 25% pretty consistently who say the quality in the state as a whole is poor and very few say excellent, around 5% say excellent. And those are fairly consistent numbers over time. So, you know, my, my interpretation of that is that Idahoans um, have kind of a middling perception of the quality of education, and maybe they think there's room for improvement. The good news is that if you shift down and you ask, well, what about the schools in your specific area? Maybe schools that people actually have uh, experience with, the perceptions do get better. So when we ask that question, we see that uh, the, per the percent who say, I think school quality is good increases, the percent who say excellent increases. And I also want to point out that if we look specifically at parents who have children in school, uh, of school age, their perceptions tend to be a, of higher quality than people who do not have children in school. So, there, so like the, the big picture is one where this, there's room for improvement, but there are some silver linings under the surface of that, of that overarching perception. All right. Professor Jeffrey Lyons, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And joining me on the pundits to talk education is Mark Browning, Vice President of College Relations for College of Western Idaho, and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Kevin, let's start with the K through 12 public schools budget that was presented to the Joint Finance Committee this week. What were the highlights from the budget uh, the budget presentation? Well, I think what you're hearing in this budget request are. Uh, they're playing the hits, both Governor Little and State Superintendent Sherry Abar. They're talking about programs that uh, the legislature has approved and endorsed overwhelmingly over the past few years, whether you're talking about uh, teacher pay raises through the career ladder, uh, additional funding for advanced opportunities, uh, advanced money in literacy in the form of this uh, summer reading program. So not really any surprises, not really a whole lot of differences really between Governor Little's budget and State Superintendent Sherry Abar's budget. And I think because of the familiarity of these programs and because you're sitting on this unprecedented surplus, I'm having a hard time seeing that there's going to be much turbulence surrounding the K-12 budget. I think it probably sails through uh, fairly easily. Not so much with higher education, but definitely on, on K-12. I think it's yeah. pretty Yes. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, that contention surrounding the higher education budget presentations, um, particularly during Boise State University's presentation on Friday morning. What was going on in JFAC? You know, I think even over Zoom, you could feel the tension because uh, Marlene Trump was, was hit with several questions about social justice issues. Ron Nate, the Republican from Rexburg, uh, Priscilla Giddings, Republican from Whitebird. These are two new members of JFAC, by the way, and they're two hardline conservatives. Uh, 
asking really uh, pointed questions about social justice issues. Most of uh, Representative Nate's talking points come pretty much straight out of a white paper that the Idaho Freedom Foundation co-authored in December. But you could tell President Trump was was not happy with the questions at all uh, and was saying, look, our agenda is to serve students and the state. And she accused Nate of misrepresenting a lot of, uh, a lot of facts about uh, programs at Boise State. Really Representatives Nate and Giddings are new to the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee, but they're not new to the legislature. Um, and the concerns they brought up weren't the first time that we've heard these issues from um, very conservative lawmakers. There has been a lot of friction between House conservatives and Marlene Trump since she arrived in July of 2019. You saw that last year when the House voted down two versions of the higher ed budget. It took a third version to get through the House. Once it finally got to the Senate, it passed unanimously. And I, I suspect that that tension is still there. I think there are a lot of conservatives in the House. I think the House may be more conservative this year than it was last year because of the elections. I think it's gonna be tough to get a higher ed budget through the House, but I think there's still a, a lot of sympathy uh, towards uh, the plight of higher education when you get over to the Senate. You know, so these appropriation bills in higher ed, there there are several, but the, the main two, what they call the college and university budget, is the four four-year schools. So it's Boise State, University of Idaho, Idaho State, and Lewis Clark State. They're packaged in one. The community colleges are packaged in their own. Uh, and then there are a number of smaller uh, appropriations for the special programs, the medical programs, Miami, those kinds of things. You know, the, the overriding uh, tension uh, within higher ed and within the legislature, within JFAC in that room is that, it, and I believe Representative Nate came out and said this, uh, are you willing to put your peers, your colleagues in harm's way, meaning the University of Idaho, Idaho State and Lewis Clark with their appropriation if you don't consent to have that, have Boise State's appropriation pulled out separately? That would be unprecedented. Uh, I, I think in most of uh, all of our time following the legislature, we, we've not seen that. Uh, the difficulty is, from a business standpoint, you look at, you know, we hear constantly, let's run these institutions like businesses. And and President Satterley over at Idaho State, I think, was very direct in his comments about, is it $77, $74 million worth of cuts and how many, you know, positions that he's cut. He's cut his business operations to the point where they're just, you know, they're they're providing just the bare minimum. And if you look at what the purpose of higher education is in the state, which is to educate your citizenry and to position people who, who come to learn for better futures, through education through career training, through you know, the degree attainment, whatever it might be, you're hurting your businesses. And I think that was the message that probably got drowned out a little bit in, in what we heard uh, Friday morning in JFAC was that many of the advocate positions that have come for more inclusion and those types of, are coming from major Idaho industries. These universities are responding to the major industries whom they're supplying with a the workforce. They're trying to take care of their customer, if you will. And I think that message got, got a little lost. But I think a but big that's an number- That's interesting point, Mark. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kevin. I, but, I think um, a big number that JFAC heard this week was 493. That's the number of positions that the four four-year institutions yeah. say that they've had to cut since the COVID crisis. You know, and you had, Kevin Satterley say, some of these cuts are not sustainable. You had Cynthia Pemberton, the president of Lewis Clark State College, who is probably the most optimistic college president I've ever yeah. met, yeah. saying, we're in the people business and we're gonna to have to reinvest in people. And she has ruled out the idea of another tuition freeze at Lewis Clark. So that 
message, I think, had to resonate with some of the budget writers. I, I would think so, too. And if you look at that committee, there's, there's a substantial amount of new membership in the committee, uh, new members to the legislature on that committee. So there's, there's a lot of background there that they've got to get up to speed on. But I think from a business sense, they, the message that is being put forth is, hey, we've cut and cut and cut. You've got to put some minimal investment back in people at this point. And I think there's a bigger conversation to be had with the state in general. You know, we, we've, we've tried to cut our way to prosperity in many ways, but you have to look at it from an economic standpoint. Just how deep can you go to the point where you're not providing the services that people are paying for? You know, Mark, I want to bring the, the two-year, the community colleges into the conversation. College of Western Idaho, for the most part, has avoided a lot of the hurt that a lot of the higher ed institutes, not just in Idaho, but around the nation, are really feeling right now. You know, we, we took our licks early, actually pre-COVID. So the way community colleges really work is when your economy is really strong and hot, when you have an unemployment rate that's statistically nil, you know, th uh, less than 3%, we typically, our enrollments are way down. So we looked at this over two, two and a half years ago and looked at some of the forecasting and said, this economy is not going anywhere but up. We need to start cutting now because we're gonna anticipate an enrollment decline. So for fiscal 20, we budgeted a 10% decrease in enrollment. We did the same in 21. We're gonna do the same for 22. And what we did was operationally, then we took those cuts voluntarily and then matched along with the governor's 2% and the 5%. So, you know, our folks have, they've, they've taken some hurt. We haven't laid off, we haven't furloughed, but we've gotten very, very lean in our operation. That along with the benefit of a super hot economy and the rise in views in, in the entire district uh, and the valuation that comes in, that's helped us to be able to sustain that we haven't had to pass on any cost to our students now in five going on six years. We've, we've held tuition uh, the same. Not everybody in the state has that advantage and we're very, we're very lucky for it. You know, the other thing too, Melissa, is all the things that we've kind of lamented at CWI for years, like, oh gosh, we wish we could, could do something with residence housing. We wish we could have athletics, right? They're very expensive to have. We wish we had food service other than vending machines on campus because so many of our students are hungry. Those are all things that take tremendous amount of capital and cash to keep going on an ongoing basis. And when COVID hit and your students aren't on campus, those are the first things to really go down, down the tank. And, and we simply didn't have to deal with that. We were able to take our collective effort and I got to just take a quick opportunity. Our faculty were tremendous. They were the ones that stepped in and said, hey, we could do this, we could do this, let's try this. They came up with something called the high flex model, where essentially the student chooses how they want to take their class on an ongoing basis. Monday, I'm in person if it's offered that way. Wednesday, I'm going to take it via Zoom. Friday, I'm going to take an online assignment. And the faculty came up with and said, yeah, that will keep our students engaged and we can keep that going. So that's been the case for us. We've been very, very fortunate. Kevin, we've got about 90 seconds left. When we're talking about K-12, when we're talking about higher education, how much of the conversation this week has focused beyond this COVID crisis that we're facing right now? How much are we looking to this post-COVID world? Well, I think this is a very reflective education week. Uh, between what uh, Superintendent Ibarra said about the K-12 budget and what the college and university presidents have said, I think there was a lot of kind of recapping what the past 10 months have been like with, uh, with instructors, uh, teachers, and college professors having to rethink how they deliver education on a dime, and institutions having to rethink how they spend money and how money comes in also on a dime. I think there was a lot of reflection 
of just how far things have had to go and how much has had to change in 10 months. And I think legislators were receptive to that. I think at one point, uh, Stephen Payne, the, the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, uh, all but told the university presidents and the college presidents, it was almost miraculous that they were able to keep the doors open this fall. So I think, I think there was a lot of goodwill on, the, on that front, but I think there's also a very sobering message about sustainability of budgets, not just this, this year, but moving forward. All right, Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News, Mark Browning, College of Western Idaho, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.